everyone. Uh, this is Devin Kumar. This is the Let's Talk About Initiative. This is the Let's Talk About Sustainable Design episode with Dr. Kimberly Curtis and Dr. Tarek Raka. A quick introduction to the initiative. This is the podcast component of the initiative, the other two components being the t-shirts and the uh, donations of sales to t-shirts. Uh, on the past, the last episode, we talked about powerlifting with Joe Sullivan, world record powerlifter, and he recommended the book Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. So I'm currently uh, in the process of reading that and journaling as he recommended. In the first episode uh, on mental health with Ian Bell, a uh, licensed clinical social worker, uh, he recommended two books. One was How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, which I talked about on the last episode. And the second book was Attached. And my thoughts on the book Attached were quite positive uh, coming into the book with a moderate amount of knowledge in attachment style and theory. I actually learned quite a bit, and I think someone with no knowledge to someone with a high level of knowledge of the attachment styles could gain quite a bit from this book. It focuses on the three main attachment styles, anxious, avoidant, and secure, and uh, basically goes about in figuring what your attachment style is, maybe how you acquired this attachment style, and tips and advice in how one can go towards a secure attachment style to the best of their ability. I do have a minor complaint of the book, and that is that there is an emphasis on pairing up relationships based on attachment styles rather than maybe pairing up people based off, you know, interests and chemistry and other important aspects of any relationship. And then from there, going over ways that regardless of attachment style, people can have a successful and cultivate a successful relationship. It, it does, you know, mention the ways in which this can be proved successful, but um, th there is still a bias towards that not being the case to begin with and pairing up based off successful pairs of attachment styles. Just a minor complaint, but that's more of my end and my views of attachment style and relationships. And uh, I, I don't mean to pose my philosophy on that to anyone else. Uh, I think attachment style is such an important topic um, in mental health. And with this rise of mental health that we've seen as of late, it's great, but attachment style isn't really spoken on um, as part of this mental health topic. And I, I think that it's uh, such an important part of that. I, I do plan on making an attachment style topic um, for this initiative uh, at some point in the future, but I'll close off the summary of the book attached from here. Okay, so um, I wanted to introduce the guest speakers to this episode. Um, Dr. Kimberly Curtis is a professor in the Structural and Materials Department of Georgia Tech and also my advisor. I'm a grad student at Georgia Tech, so she's my advisor. And uh, Dr. Tarek Raka, who is a uh, professor in the Department of Architecture. So uh, I, I just wanted to briefly introduce you both, but I also want to um, both to mention what your education background is, where your research lies, and, and why you are uh, good people to talk about uh, sustainable design. So Dr. Curtis is on the material side of things, and Dr. Raka was on the design side of things. So I thought it'd be interesting to bring them both to talk about sustainable design. Uh, so do you both mind uh, kind of briefly going over your experience on, um, on this? So we can start with uh, maybe Dr. Curtis. Okay. 
Hey, so I'm a civil engineer by training, but I've always had a longstanding interest in materials. And so when I was going to do my PhD, I chose to do it at UC Berkeley, which has just a tremendously long history in cements and concrete. Uh, and the materials are actually very fascinating. I'm looking forward to being able to share more with you today about why I find them so interesting. Today, I have been a professor at Georgia Tech for 21 years. Um, I'm in the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering uh, with a joint appointment in material science and engineering. My research still centers on cements and concrete and um, is really motivated by our interest in addressing sustainability uh, through these materials. They're just really ubiquitous and it I find them um, to be a great vehicle for making change and doing good. So I'm looking forward to being able to share some of that today with you. Awesome. Well, thanks again for coming on, Dr. Curtis. Dr. Rocca? So thank you so much for uh, inviting me, Devin. And um, my educational background basically is that I'm an architect by training, but I'm an architect in the context of Egypt specifically, because going through licensure in the context of the United States is actually a very different process. Uh, and my research is focusing on energy efficiency and sustainability in the built environment. I joined MIT for my doctorate at the Building Technology Program, which is actually uh, unique in its setup because it is within a department of architecture, but it is a group of faculty that are focusing on different avenues within the built environment between structural engineering, mechanical engineering, building physics, and architecture. Um, basically, I found myself focusing on various topics within the realm of building performance simulation. And it's basically the study of the built environment through the lens of computational design and its relationship to building physics modeling. I focus on various scales and degrees of interest. Uh, one is building envelope diagnostics, so looking at building skins uh, using drones and um, uh, various non-destructive testing techniques such as infrared imaging. Uh, and uh, I use computational uh, approaches such as machine learning and computer vision to identify anomalies in building envelopes. I also focus on building energy modeling at the building an urban scale, so looking at neighborhood energy to inform community design practices that are more energy efficient and sustainable. And I also look at the building scale, uh, such as daylighting or access to natural light in the built environment. And finally, I focus on outdoor thermal comfort and uh, modeling of the microclimates uh, within our cities and neighborhoods, and specifically relating it to the walkability and bikeability of cities, which is enabling more sustainable ways of mobility and looking beyond inside buildings and looking into what's happening in between buildings as well. Awesome. So yeah, I would have done a disservice to both of you if I tried to introduce you both past my uh, what I did. So I'm really excited for this uh, episode. I, I think, uh, like I said, Dr. Curtis, looking at things from the material side and Dr. Rocca from the design side, it, it, it brings interesting discussion regarding sustainable design in the built environment and even at the urban scale. Uh, so let's get into things. I always like to start off with a bit of basic info for listeners who aren't uh, super into sustainable design or 
don't have a ton of background info. So uh, to both of you, uh, what is sustainable design and how do we measure the level of sustainability a structure or design has, um, whether that be through metrics or certifications, um, service life, uh, and building performance, so on. Uh, so uh, Dr. Curtis, do you mind kicking us off here? For this one, I, I can talk about, um, you know, the, the material that I work with, which is, you know, cement and concrete. And a lot of times when we're thinking about uh, making the design more sustainable, uh, we might do something like a life cycle assessment. So you're looking at what is the embodied uh, greenhouse gases or maybe the embodied energy in the production of the components that make up the concrete or an, an individual component like the cement. So cement and concrete are not the same thing. Cement is an ingredient in concrete, but it's the most energy intensive ingredient in concrete. About 95% of the embodied energy and greenhouse gas uh, emissions in concrete are associated with the cement. So there's a lot of energy and, and research spent on um, producing greener cements or cements that can be more sustainable. Um, so when we think about quantifying the sustainability of concrete, we'll do a life cycle assessment. And there are two general ways to do that. You can look at sort of calculating how much energy it takes to produce something until it's in place. So that would be what we call a, a cradle to gate LCA. Or you can also look at, you know, how the material performs over its lifespan and incorporate that as well. And sometimes it's harder to get, you know, that kind of data, uh, but we would call that a, a cradle to grave assessment. So uh, research that we do in my group is very much centered on both of those aspects. So trying to design uh, material systems that are more um, sustainable at the outset, meaning that their initial embodied energy and greenhouse gas emissions are lower than conventional concrete. And also, though, that which, you know, outperform conventional concrete in the long term. So they have a longer service life or are more durable. Um, I think that's really important uh, because you don't want to design something that's initially considered to be more sustainable and then has a shorter lifespan. So then you would have to repair it or potentially even reconstruct it. Uh, and so uh, we're always aiming to extend service life, especially uh, these days as um, the built environment has uh, more and more likelihood of interacting with the natural environment. Uh, we see more and more extreme events, more flooding, uh, things like that. And so we need uh, concrete that's more durable than ever. Awesome. And I know you mentioned uh, em embodied energy. Do you mind touching on, you know, why embodied, what embodied energy and embodied carbon is and uh, why that's important? You know, if you think about the entire process of making something like cement, for example, you have to think about how much energy it takes, you know, to mine the raw materials, to transport the raw materials to the cement manufacturing facility. How much energy does it take to grind those materials? Um, with cement, the most energy is really spent uh, in something we call calcination. So we have to put the raw materials that make cement into a kiln. Uh, that kiln has to be heated to 1450 C, so Celsius, really, really hot, over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And it has to reside in that kiln for a amount of time. Um, and then it comes out, we grind it again, and then we transport it uh, to the site where it would be used uh, to make concrete. All of those processes, especially the time in the kiln, take enormous amounts of energy. So when we talk about embodied energy, we're basically summing up um, all the energy that it took to produce one unit of cement. Uh, so whether that's a ton or, you know, some type of volumetric measure, um, you would quantify then you know, how much energy it took to make a, a single unit. 
For greenhouse gas emissions, it's a little bit um, different. So there would, of course, be greenhouse gas emissions associated with all of those steps. And then with cements in particular, uh, when the cement is in the kiln, uh, because it's made uh, largely of limestone, which is calcium carbonate, when that's heated up, CO2 is emitted. So about 60% of this, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with cement production are actually released there in the kiln. And that tr- creates tremendous opportunities in sustainability, for example, with carbon capture. Uh, so, um, so the greenhouse gas emissions are really just summing up, you know, not just the emitted CO2, but all of the, the gases that contribute to the greenhouse effect through the entire process of producing a unit of cement. We can do the same thing uh, for the production of concrete, uh, where we would consider, you know, aggregates uh, and water as well. But I will stop there because that sounds like a lot. Thanks, Dr. Curtis. Yeah, so wh- why embodied energy and you know, embodied carbon are, are such important metrics of sustainability is um, because it's it's looking at the amount of energy from, um, you know, gathering the resources to uh, building. And then in some cases, um, some of the uh, some of embodied energy includes demolition as well. So I guess that's why it's kind of an important metric to define if a material or design or structure is more or less um, sustainable. And I guess, you know, the goal would be to minimize the embodied energy. So uh, Dr. Rocco, do you mind uh, getting into what sustainable design is and uh, the metrics involved with that? And um, as far as building performance, et cetera? Sure. And I would like to start by building on in that discussion on embodied energy, because there are several means of perceiving energy in the built environment. And one aspect that we typically look at from a design perspective, from an architectural practice in general, is operational energy. And operational energy is the energy that we spend on various means and measures of living in the building we're in. So for example, it's uh, heating the building, cooling the building, uh, using electric lighting or equipment. So it's plug loads, it's your computer, it's your toaster. All of these forms of energy are all operational. And so when we talk about sustainability from an energy perspective, you want to lower the energy impact so that you maintain a much lower impact on the built environment and on the environment in general. And so more and more buildings are becoming more energy efficient. Now, the issue here is when you are building these energy efficient structures, which are from an operational standpoint uh, and from people's interaction are much lower impact, you suddenly find that there are other means of energy that become quite apparent. Embodied energy is one of them, because if you build a building, that is operationally speaking, very good. So you've done great daylighting design. So it's admittance of natural light and you're lowering the impact on electric lighting or you're using new methods such as LEDs or advanced lighting uh, fixtures. You are lowering lighting energy. You will find that the energy you spent on manufacturing the glass and transporting it and installing it and then later demolition or uh, reuse is significant when you compare it to very energy efficient buildings from an operational standpoint. And so sustainability in the built environment uh, by a broader definition is the intention or the calculated measures of retaining as much as we have in terms of energy or resources so that we are able to give it to the next generation. That's the really high level definition of sustainability is basically not being selfish and 
leaving resources for the next generations. And that typically comes in, in um, the literature in three forms, uh, economic, uh, energy, and social. And so the means of measuring each of these is very different. Uh, I specifically can talk to you about the energy component to it, uh, which is, as we talked about, operational and embodied. And what we are aiming towards more and more is to have built environments that don't just use energy, but actually give back. So rather than having buildings that consume energy, we want buildings that generate energy and give it back. So that's the definition of a building that is net zero, between quotations, net zero meaning that it spends uh, as much energy as it produces throughout a year, through a balanced calculation, we're able to say that on average, or uh, exactly in an energy bill throughout the year, we are producing energy from renewable resources, such as solar energy or wind, or re we're reducing impact through geothermal, for example. And we are spending, we're very, very energy efficient, so we're spending a lot less energy, and it balances out. Uh, and more and more, the sustainability movement, which has become mainstream and has been used in many Many features of buildings as a way to sell it rather than making sure that it operates well. And so the measurement becomes important. Uh, in many occasions now, we are moving beyond net zero to become net positive, which is basically the idea of selling back energy to the grid, generating uh, monies for owners, and basically becoming good neighbors to each other where we're generating energy that makes a system operate much more resilient to any kind of external factors. So that's a broad definition of sustainability, and it, I believe it links very well to Dr. Kurtz's discussion on uh, embodied carbon and embodied energies when it comes to manufacturing of materials. Yeah, yeah I, that, that, oh, go ahead. I would build on your concept also of thinking about the social equity. I think that's an important pillar of sustainability that uh, people are just now really digging into and trying to understand. In my community in concrete research, we recognize you know, concrete really forms the basic infrastructure uh, for for society, you know, the, the roads we drive on, the way we produce and capture and store water, the way we produce energy, our houses, all of these things depend on concrete. And so how do we deliver that infrastructure in an equitable way that um, harms the planet as, as uh, little as possible? It's just an enormous challenge. Absolutely. And from a social uh, and equity perspective, this has become more and more prevailing when we're thinking about underrepresented communities' access to resources and how their built environment uh, responds to their needs and how there is now a shift towards considerations that the what we've been focusing on for building new buildings, for example, are about these energy efficient, net positive buildings that are uh, very highly performing. But at the same time, we're neglecting buildings that are already existing that need retrofitting for it to become more sustainable, to give it to the next generations. And therefore, I believe, yes, access to energy, resiliency and reaction to catastrophes or emergencies such as a heat wave or, or uh, rising in, in sea level or ocean levels, all of these are becoming part of the sustainability umbrella as we are considering more and more how people are interacting with the built environment than just the built environment on its own. These are both uh, really great answers, a lot of information in them. So I guess a quick preface and then another question. And, you know, I'm seeing how a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, questions or discussions, they, they, they correlate 
quite a bit to each other. So I'm going to try to pack a lot into this next one here. Um, and I, I think it will be, yeah. be better. Uh, you, so you get oh, more than you bargain for when you invite two academics to come and speak. <laughs> oh, tr- tr- trust me, no, no complaints here. <laughs> no, no, no complaints here. So and I probably should have prefaced this, but, but before we uh, got started, but um, to the listeners, uh, th- this, this whole episode, and I mean, anything that I'm going to produce and put out there is with the, uh, the understanding that climate change and global warming are uh, very real and very serious. So, um, you know, I'm sure we could have a whole discussion on why they are legitimate, but uh, I, I'd rather have a more interesting conversation when uh, something as trivial as the uh, reality of climate change is, is uh, well, it is trivial. So, uh, you know, you both made an interesting point on how one of the aspects of sustainable design is increasing service life. And uh, Dr. Curtis, I know you mentioned uh, climate ch- the effects of climate change impacting uh, design choices. And uh, Dr. Raka, as far as uh, user experience uh, with climate change. So when, when we're designing something, we want to take into account how you know, the climate will affect the material strength and materials properties, as well as on the design uh, side, side of things, the user experience. So uh, do you mind, do you both mind speaking on um, how we can tackle this issue for new structures as well as retrofitting existing structures? And retrofitting, um, I'm sure you both could define this better, but uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with the term, it's basically looking at an existing design or structure that has an issue with it and uh, fixing it rather than rebuilding it. So uh, Dr. Raka, you want, you mind kicking us off with this one first? No, I'd like to clarify which aspect exactly you would like to reflect on, because you're mentioning new constructions and retrofits, which are both of great interest. But if you can just clarify exactly what you would like to to focus on, I'd be very happy to. Sure. So I guess first, how can, from on the design side of things, how can we consider sustainable design as far as extending service life for the user experience for new structures? and then uh, compare that to retrofitting existing structures. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So from a design perspective, we always start, if we're talking about a new construction, we're looking at something that is going to be developed from scratch, we're typically looking at what's happening on site first. We do not decide on anything without understanding the climate and the context of which a building is going to be built. So that includes, for example, understanding the microclimate, so temperature, relative humidity, where the prevailing winds are coming from, uh, the solar angles, so where is the sun coming from, to basically make decisions on how the building can be most comfortable with the least expenditure of energy. So we're designing what is called passive systems that make use of natural resources. And in order to make design decisions that are informed, we need to understand what the site basically is experiencing. And then there are multiple means in design for taking the most informed decisions. Those who are seasoned architects or who rely on historical precedents can learn very quickly how to build sustainably or efficiently. Those who are still in the learning curve or want to be informed with quite precision, like a lot of precision, would use workflows that would incorporate simulation tools. And simulation tools basically represent the built environment within the computer with validated models that allow us to see how the building would perform and how people would interact with it. And then you make all of these decisions related to 
building envelopes. So what is the building going to build from? How is it oriented? What are the window materials and window sizes you're going to be using? And basically, what kind of insulation, what kind of resistance do you need for the environment you're in? And then we consider building systems that have to do with passive systems and active systems that allow people to be living in a comfortable environment, but at the same time being efficient. And of course, with all of these considerations, we look at how people will interact with the built environment. So we think about when people are going to be in buildings and how they're going to be interacting with all of the systems that are designed for them. From a retrofitting perspective, you have much more constraint and you need to diagnose issues rather than start designing from scratch. So you need to see context and microclimate and all of these, but you also need to be inspecting what is actually happening within the building. And that is typically done through what is called an energy audit that allows an auditor to come with equipment that allows them to see how the envelope is performing uh, in its existing situation, where defects are, where is the most bank on the buck, basically understanding where is insulation missing? Where is infiltration happening? How can we fix some defects or some deterioration in the building envelope and of course diagnose existing systems that include heating ventilation and air conditioning that might not be performing as well and understand how can we make it perform better and then you make these decisions that could involve a simulation software and in many cases do not with the building scale for example being a single home um, you may have a suite of tools that are accessible to a designer that may not need to be informed by a simulation tool and so there are in commonalities between understanding the microclimate and making design decisions that are informed whether through simulation or best practices but with a retrofitting design you have a much complex challenge but a, a very interesting problem because you can imagine that the energy that you would spend in demolishing a building and the money that you would spend in erecting a new one might be a significant impact that you may want to avoid. And as we live mostly in a deteriorating built environment in the United States, half of the built environment is built before the year 1970. And so it's performing much worse. And we're not going to demolish half of the built environment in the United States. And so retrofitting becomes a very important measure. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Rucka. Uh, Dr. Curtis? I, I can build on that a little bit because I would absolutely agree that our infrastructure is aging. You know, the American Society for Civil Engineers does a report card every couple of years, and the infrastructure tends to get, you know, a, a significantly below average grade. It usually hovers somewhere between a, a D and a C minus, um, depending on, on the year. And a lot of that is due to age and lack of investment. Uh, we have tremendous opportunities to improve our infrastructure, and that can have a big impact on our economy. It also creates jobs. Um, much of the infrastructure, you know, if you think about it, it is decades beyond its intended service life. Uh, we think about the network of highways that were constructed under the Eisenhower administration. You know, those are, you know, decades beyond what their intended service life was, which was probably you know, 20, 30, maybe 40 years. And here they are still serving us. Uh, you can also think about nuclear power plants. You know, those are designed uh, for 20 or 40 year service lives. A lot of the nuclear power plants are going up now for second license renewals. And they're looking at how the concrete's performing. And so if you think about reconstruction of a, of a building, that's one thing. But if you think about these 
huge systems that we are so reliant on. The amount of investment that it takes, you know, to build a nuclear power plant, we're building one right now in Georgia, is just enormous. Um, so you have to think about extending service life as much as possible to really preserve resources. Awesome. Yeah, I guess it's important to highlight that I think someone who is new to or is learning about sustainability or sustainable design, um, they might be thinking about new structures. But as you both were mentioning, there are, you know, so much of the built environment is existing structures that were built prior to Dr. Raka, I think you said maybe 1960. So a big field or a big focus of sustainable design is looking at existing structures and seeing how we can make them more sustainable, whether that's due to weatherization or, you know, uh, Dr. Curtis, my research with you is looking at the extension of service life of concrete under um, a specific type of ASR reaction. So uh, Dr. Curtis, this is um, a little more of a question on the material side of things, but Dr. Rock, I'm also um, open to hear if you have any input. In a, um, a presentation you gave a few years back, there was a chart you presented on um, looking at embodied energy and embodied carbon and looking at different types of construction materials such as concrete, uh, timber, steel. And I thought it was actually pretty interesting that concrete had the lowest embodied energy and embodied uh, carbon footprint versus uh, timber, which is, you know, considered a optimal choice for sustainable design since it's, you know, 100% renewable. Do you mind uh, speaking on this? And what are the advantages of concrete versus other material choices, especially with how the research is heading today versus, yeah, versus other material selection? Yeah. So I, I was excited, Devin, that you brought up that slide for a few reasons. And there are a couple of points I wanted to make. First, it's pretty exciting that you went back and watched that presentation that I gave back in 2013. It's always flattering that um, somebody wants to listen to what you have to say. That was a keynote talk that I gave at an engineering mechanics uh, institute conference. Um, so that's the first point I wanted to make was just to thank you for, for paying oh, yeah, attention no, no to problem. that. And then second point, that is not my plot. So there's a very, very famous professor in the UK, Michael Ashby, who produces these beautiful plots that really take complex information and present them in a very graphical way that they can be used to guide design. Uh, and their entire course is built off of his materials. So there's lots of Ashby plots out there. So the one that I, I shared, um, really, yes, it did show that concrete, and this was all done on a mass basis, is a relatively sustainable material compared to other choices. You know, concrete is not a bad material. It gets kind of a bad rap because it's so ubiquitous. We use so much of it that its contribution to greenhouse gas emissions is around 5 to 6% of global greenhouse gas emissions each year. Uh, it's also a 5 to 6% of the um, energy consumption each year worldwide. Uh, and that's simply because we use so much of it um, because it's such a useful material. And so you asked, you know, to compare with timber, you know, there's lots of things that you can build from concrete that you couldn't build from timber, for example, you know, like a dam, right? Wouldn't, or a, a bridge to carry heavy load, tall buildings, although now they are trying to build tall buildings out of timber. So that's an interesting challenge. Yeah. Um, the final point I wanted to make was really around um, how you present data. And so that plot is done on a mass basis. And so if you think about the density of concrete compared to the density of wood, you know, you've got 
a really large denominator when you're thinking about concrete compared to wood. So that's one thing I want to caution people about when they start looking at sustainability is that there's a lot of information out there, but you really have to look at it critically and assess it, I think, with the idea in mind that people always have a perspective when they're sharing uh, this data with you and you want to try to understand what the truth is. Uh, There's a concept called greenwashing. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I haven't. No, okay. So greenwashing is this idea of putting a wash or a, a veneer of sustainability on um, something that's perhaps not as sustainable uh, if you really dig deep to try and understand it. People want to believe that what they're doing contributes positively or they want to sell a new product or a new idea. And so there might be this veneer of greenness, uh, but if you dig deep enough, it may not be necessarily better or necessarily true. So I think it's really important when you start digging into making sustainable choices to really gain as much knowledge as you can and make informed decisions. So in in that case, you know, that plot shares, you know, comparisons between materials on a mass basis. If you did it on a volumetric basis or a strength basis, the order of the materials would be different. So you have to make sure you're asking the right questions. Oh, very good point. And how's an individual who's, you know, might not know the right resources to look to, to, to educate themselves, where do you recommend them, you know, looking into comparing what is truly sustainable for their goal? I think that's where academics uh, really play a a really important role. We are not invested in, you know, promoting a certain product or a certain industry. We're interested in understanding the truth. We're interested in the science and the engineering of the technology. And so I think, you know, going to people who are impartial um, and resources that are impartial uh, is a great place to start. Gotcha. And I, I guess this is maybe um, a, a ta- quick tangent, but I, I think maybe it's important um, with, with this with this discussion. So as far as educating the individual, I, I know academia versus industry, obviously industry is going to be more biased based off. Uh, it's a lot more maybe monetary driven. But as far as research goes, since there is a... Um, I guess there is a client as well who's providing money for the research. How do we look past, I mean, is that an issue as far as uh, creating biases in research results? Or would you say that, you know, we still stay impartial research regardless of who's funding the research? Yeah, that's that's a really good point that you make. Um, Most scientific papers will have an acknowledgement section where you can see, you know, who funded the research. And certainly that can be some important context to understand uh, these days, a lot of academics are also starting companies. Um, and so this interest in entrepreneurship certainly does influence the type of information that's being made available. So again, you just have to have your eyes open and know that you know this is an, this is not just altruism. There's a big industry around sustainability as well. Certainly money to be made. And so I think going in and having this mindset that you really want to understand uh, what the truth is and, and make informed decisions is really important. I want to chime in on this because I've had experiences where industry funding sometimes isn't was is not biased. Like they they come with the intention that they have a product and they would like for that product to be promoted through peer reviewed studies that would give this product legitimacy or at least measured impact. And if you are not following what they're interested in, they may be invested in a different way and so 
your your question is very challenging because there is an industry and academia relationship that needs to be built because we are good in verifying the ground truth. We are trained to do the research in such a way that we are able to represent where the opportunities lie and where the challenges may be in a way that is not biased. But some industry funding would like to see all of what is positive about what they're interested in. And so it is up to those who are leading the research to be unbiased and uh, unwavering in uh, always presenting the truth. But even with what Dr. Curtis said, even with acknowledgement sections and representations of how this uh, funding clearly came about, you should know and your listeners should know that, as Dr. Curtis mentioned, there is an, um, a profit to be made on both sides. And so we need to be careful about intentions. We need to be careful about, uh, about where the funding is coming from and how it is contributing to sustainable solutions and if these solutions are actually sustainable or not. I think that's a great point that you made. I just want to amplify your um, highlight of peer-reviewed publications. I think the peer review process is really important uh, in terms of validating information that's out there. So I think if you're weighing, you know, where you're getting your information from, taking things from uh, peer-reviewed journals or societies where it's gone through a process of, of vetting for truth, uh, that's really important. And I also want to amplify uh, the importance of industry partnering with academia. I think that's a really important point that you make that academics can play an important role in terms of guiding, uh, in my case, materials design. We're working with a, a company right now that's come to us uh, interested in understanding how their technology compares to um, traditional technology. And we're actually helping them to refine their production process so that it can be as sustainable as possible. And so it's a good example, I think, of, of a good partnership that can exist between the two. Yeah. And that's symbiotic, right? So there is... Yeah. The need for them to develop something. They come to you because they actually want the advice. They don't come with the intention, hey, we have that product and we just want you to say how great it is, which happens, which is really odd. Uh, but in this case, we are available to benefit from these industry relationship to influence it, to nudge it towards the right direction or show them where the, the flaws are or where you can improve upon whatever you're developing uh, and so we need to be always staying true to that. So it, it sounds great. It sounds what you're working on sounds wonderful. This is uh, a lot to unpack here as well. I appreciate all the um, you know the info you guys are providing. This is awesome. So first, I wanted to get into this later, but I think this also puts a good time to input. This is that speaking on the relationship between industry and uh, academia research. I also think that's really important because I think. If maybe they are working independently, there's quite a bit of lag before the industry picks up what academia might may present as beneficial in terms of sustainability. But as far as really anything, I think for the most part, academia is looking at uh, how to make uh, solutions better. And I'm sure you both would agree, but please feel free to speak up if not. But th there definitely is a lag between solutions presented by academia and industry picking them up. So yeah, so that, that's one thing I wanted to mention. And the second thing is that uh, I like how you both mentioned looking at peer-reviewed uh, information. I mean, sustainable design in itself is such a complicated topic. 
I mean, there's no way that we could get into everything in you know, the hour, hour and a half that we have here. And, and the goal about this whole Let's Talk About initiative is to present a uh, topic that is important um, with relevant guest speakers to let the listener get a good amount of background information and basically lead them to where they could individually take their next steps in educating themselves. So I, I think that's a really good point. And that's why I wanted to take a step back to talk about that, because like I said, I think that's really important to make sure that listeners are taking the right steps in educating themselves and have a good direction. So I guess the third point here is that there's this trade-off as well as relationship between uh, material selection and for embodied energy in developing a structure, as well as embodied energy of um, a structure once it's built and running. So I wanted to touch on that as well. I think an interesting uh, relationship, for an example, is concrete, you know, at face value might not be the most ideal material selection for a structure, given the location or maybe cost that the client is looking at. But if you look at things from a uh, energy perspective, once the building is up and running, concrete's a high thermal mass can be advantageous in certain climates of, you know, emitting or keeping cool in at nighttime or keeping heat in nighttime based off the uh, the climate. I, I explained that really bad. Dr. Kirst, this was a lot I just presented as well. But do you mind uh, talking about the trade-off between material selection and uh, design? Um, as well as the lag that the academia presents versus industry picking it up. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I can address it maybe by giving a simple example. So, uh, you know, going back to that EMI talk that I gave a few years ago, I give an example, a very simple example about how enhancements and how concrete performs can actually make it more sustainable. And the example that I give is, you know, if we think about making higher strength concrete, sometimes we have to uh, include some more exotic materials to make it have a higher strength. Um, maybe something like silica fume, uh, which uh, costs more and might have um, some embodied energy associated with its transportation because it doesn't always get produced, you know, near the concrete uh, facility. So, and, and we also have to use a lot more cement to make a higher strength concrete. So at the outset, it may seem that that may not be the right choice, you know, that the increase in strength um, comes with this increase in embodied energy because we have to use more cement and maybe some more exotic materials. Uh, but if you go through um, even, you know, a cradle to gate assessment where you look at actually the structural design, if the strength of the concrete is twice as much, that means we can actually use half as much concrete. And so I think that's a really simple example uh, where you can show that performance here can really help guide sustainability. And so I, I make a really strong case, I think, in that talk that a lot of times it's innovations and some of those are spurred by industry that can allow us to uh, address sustainability in, in more creative ways than maybe we had previously appreciated. Great point. Uh, Dr. Raka? For me, the... the notion of considering how materials have been evolving over time and our consideration of how we can be much more sustainable about thinking about them uh, might might be biased against a material like concrete but i've been seeing uh, such an increase in research on how to develop integrations within the the mixtures of concrete that become more sustainable in how we're aggregating materials together, like what types of materials come together. 
And so I I think there are the the comparison you made is that a high thermal mass becomes necessary in certain climates and that's something that becomes very useful when we're using a material like concrete which is very interesting and so there is a trade-off and we cannot demonize uh, one material immediately without spending much time scrutinizing how it can become much more useful if there is use to it and so i i really see this direction even adopted by major cement specifically companies that want to contribute to a better built environment however i have very limited knowledge uh, on that side so i i refer to dr curtis's uh, expertise on it okay this is this is really helpful too uh thanks again to you both for that okay so um i guess one more thing on the, the materials side uh there are i think there's also a trade off between looking at material that is 100% renewable, such as timber, versus uh, focusing on increasing technology for widely used materials such as concrete and steel, who have, like you said, Dr. Curtis, more potential in terms of providing uh, better structures, better, stronger structures, uh, longer lasting structures. Do you believe the goal is to increase the use of concrete or increase the technology behind concrete to make it more sustainable? Or do you think the long-term shift should be to uh, go towards materials selection that is 100% renewable? Or is concrete maybe on the direction of becoming 100% renewable? As somebody who's very interested in materials, I think it's critically important. It's just absolutely fundamental that you choose, you select the right material for the right application. I gave the example before, you wouldn't make a dam you know, out of wood. And and concrete is not always the right material. Sometimes wood makes sense. Um, sometimes steel makes sense. Um, so uh, things like those Ashby plots have spawned a whole area of design uh, where you can consider different materials based on what your performance criteria are. And it's everything from strength to density to, you know, uh, aspects that you brought up about, you know, thermal mass. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And I know uh, just from you know my own experience working in the industry, there's some of the technologies behind like timber. You know, there, there's cross-laminated timber CLT that allows for uh, multi-level wood structures, which you know may seem not controversial but not possible. And I, I was working in a firm uh, last summer uh, where a professor presented a um, the new technologies arising from wood construction. And there was a lot of, I guess, feedback regarding clients wanting to pursue this new technology um, because it's less, I guess, less widely known, as well as um, other issues such as um, span constraints. How can academia and industry educate the consumer or client to um, to be more open to sustainable design as far as if there is a trade-off between sustainable sustainability and performance for the client's needs or um, or just wanting to have a more sustainable design regardless of the performance. So I'd actually, I think this is a good question for both of you. I was actually going to say I would defer to um, Professor Rodka because this is really about the conceptualization of the design. Uh, this is a discussion that the owner would have um, very early on uh, with the architect. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to reflect on this. So um, there are 
several means and measures by which you can motivate individuals, owners, or basically those who are managing parts of the built environment to make decisions that become more sustainable or more towards directions that are efficient or resilient when it comes to issues of uh, sustainability and climate change. So there's the fairly straightforward one, which is that as governments realize more and more the threat that we are facing on this planet with climate change issues becoming more evident, uh, policies can be made to force people to make the right decisions. And that is given in many examples around the world where building codes are becoming much more stringent and therefore the performance is becoming better. That's one. And two, for example, uh, situations like in New York City, where in a couple of years, I believe 2023, if I'm not mistaken, there is going to be attacks on those buildings that do not perform to a certain metric called energy use intensity, which is a metric that sums up all of the energy use in a building and divides it by its area. So it normalizes it. So you're able to take one unit of a building and basically measure how it's performing. And if it is not performing according to a certain standard, uh, based on the building type in New York City, that building is going to be paying taxes. So this is the carrots part of the, sorry, the sticks part of the discussion, right? You're forcing people to adhere to measures and these allow you to become much more energy efficient. Now there's the carrots part of the situation in which uh, many benchmarking entities such as LEED or BREEAM or the Well Building Standard or the Passive House Standard or more recently the Living Building Challenge are basically these contributions where a building is going to be dubbed LEED certified or LEED silver, LEED gold, LEED platinum or a Living Building Challenge contribution which means that it's meeting a certain standard. And so people can be proud that they're part of this contribution to the environment. So people want to live in in buildings that are sustainable or energy efficient because they want to contribute to the environment. So there are entire neighborhoods that are built to a higher standard or integrate renewable energy. And so it attracts those individuals that want to own these buildings or want to be tenants of these buildings because they want to contribute to a better environment. So there's also the nudges that those who are trained to do the decisions can help their owners make these decisions. So for example, architects who are trained uh, in sustainable design, so they go through architectural school and they take courses and studios that focus on sustainability, they go into the workforce and they help in making informed decisions and therefore the owners would basically be responding to how they're helping them in making these decisions. There are many means and measures by which uh, academia and industry can collaborate in order to inform those who are making the decisions. And so all of the suite of tools needs to be used. You need to be firm at certain points. You need government buildings to be imposing the policies that they're forcing everyone to do on their own buildings. And you want also to be giving opportunities for people to want to be attracted to you, want to get these certifications or benchmarks that make them perform better, make them basically feel positive, but at the same time makes them in a measurable way know that they are contributing to a better built environment. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so as far as um, academia, I like the point that you make about how uh, training architects at the um, education level to build more sustainable, obviously that 
translates to more sustainable design in the industry because once these architects graduate and get their uh, license, they are providing these recommendations and uh, more sustainable design. So I guess in that regards, it kind of starts from the ground up, as well as these incentives and decentives for uh, building more sustainable. So another note on the design side of things, I think maybe creating a more sustainable design can be more expensive upfront, um, especially if that sustainable design focuses on material selection, uh, orientation, or um, just the layout of the building that results in less energy use throughout the building's lifespan. How can the role of new computer programs in modeling help this um, to educate the clients to pursue more sustainable design? Uh, I know computer programs is is really cutting edge these days. And I want to, you know, I know these need to be utilized and are being utilized um, for the most benefit out of sustainable design. So I'll, I'll, um, reflect on this from a perspective that is not just anchoring on simulation or building models. I want to also react to the financial component, which is not representative of how sustainable buildings should be perceived. Yes, there is an expectation that capital cost in the beginning uh, of any project might be higher because you are choosing performative windows, which are going to be more insulating, for example, and therefore because they have more materials in them, like double pane or triple pane windows that are is constructed to a high standard, it might be more expensive. However, if you do a cost-benefit analysis or a life cycle analysis where you see what kind of benefits you're taking or you're getting, sorry, when you are making that kind of informed decision, you are going to find out that on the span of the building, in terms of the operational years within the beginning of it, you're going to quickly regain whatever investment you've made. So let's take the example of electric lighting, for example. It might seem uh, very attractive to make decisions uh, that are cheaper, for example, invest in using uh, fluorescent lighting or incandescent lighting, or both of which are are part of a national debate when it comes to administrations that are promoting the use of these inefficient equipment, for example, dishwashers or other basically home appliances or general commercial office appliances that are outdated and are cheaper, right? So you use an incandescent light bulb, it's going to be significantly cheaper. However, it has a lifespan that is significantly shorter. We're talking 100 orders of magnitude as compared to LEDs. Uh, We're talking that maintenance part of it is going to be an issue. And we're talking that operational energy is going to be higher. So uh, in the span of 20 years, you're going to be replacing X amount of incandescent light bulbs, and they're going to be consuming Y amount, which is considerably higher. Then when you invest in compact fluorescent light or LEDs that are much more energy efficient, a little bit more expensive in the beginning, but will stay with you for a considerable amount of working hours. So when you do the cost-benefit analysis, you're quickly going to know that if you're making decisions that are a little bit capital-intensive in the beginning, but will regain operational monies for you back, so for example, you're investing in renewable energy, that's not uh, an insignificant contribution if you're going to be buying PV panels. However, if they're designed correctly and you have low operational energy expenditures, you could be able to manage an entire operation of a building using renewable energy integration and batteries that basically allow you to manage loads in such a way that your operational costs are going to be significantly reduced. So as a reaction, yes, there is an investment, 
but the return on the investment should be much higher. That makes sense. Before we kind of close up this episode, a couple of the themes, as I mentioned, is mental health and social justice. So I like to link, you know, these two topics to whatever I'm speaking of, whatever month it is. So um, let, let's start with mental health, although, you know, that's in our conversation, conversation about how the mental health and social justice are, are related. But as far as sustainable design, how does sustainable design have an impact on mental health within the um, maybe from small scale, such as indoor air quality of a building to the urban scale. So Dr. Raka, I know in uh, previous presentations, you've posed a uh, question on what a smart city really is. Is it, you know, having self-driving cars and spending more time in cars, or is it providing a uh, community at the urban scale that emphasizes walking or running or biking and uh, designing, you know, the surrounding buildings that emphasize or incentivize these uh, natural and healthier ways of transportating, whether it be through shading or whatnot. Can, can you speak more on this, Dr. Raka? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm like Dr. Curtis, I'm very impressed that you digged into archives and found my TED talk, which was significant, I don't know, six years ago, seven, seven years ago, which is very interesting. This was TEDx Cairo. So I, I'm very impressed and I'm, uh, I, I hope your uh, um, followers or listeners uh, understand how much preparation you put into this, which is <laughs> is great. Uh, and uh, okay, so there are two things when it comes to mental health here. There are deliberate mental health decisions that relate to sustainable design, and there is also um, secondary, un like unaccounted for, but just so happens that it it aligns very well. I'll tell you about the deliberate one, and then I'll go to the undeliberate one, which is the one that you discussed. The deliberate one is uh, you make decisions that better the place where people live, work, and play so that their mental uh, experiences are much better. So for example, natural lighting design becomes very helpful for people to entrain their circadian rhythms, which is the sleep-wake cycle. This is the control of melatonin so that people are exposed to light when it's daytime and then they are not during nighttime and so they're able to sleep better. That gives better uh, mental performance in general and also helps people um, that, for example, might be experiencing things like a seasonal affective disorder, which is a real mental health threat. So you could be designing deliberately for better mental health. But there is also the artifact of living in a sustainable environment that contributes to a better environment in general. And so your mental your mental health is basically based on your perceptions of where you're living. So you talked about the walkability of cities. And you can imagine that if you're living an automobile-centric lifestyle, it's going to be stressful. You are in a car locked in, you are expending money. So you're buying the car, you're maintaining the car, you're using fuel that you're, that you're buying. You're also contributing to a worse environment in general, but you're wasting your time. You are congestion. So you're not in congestion. You are congestion and you're stressed out because you are, you are in a machine that is capable of taking lives because of how heavy it is and how mechanically challenging or dangerous it might be unintuitive as opposed to 
being on a bicycle or walking, which is a pleasant experience. A walk is going to make you definitely feel better. Biking is going to actually make you exercise. So you're in an automobile gaining weight because you're not exercising versus being on a bicycle where you are actually losing weight. You're in an automobile being stressed out and wasting time. You're on a bicycle that is faster when the built environment infrastructure helps you. And the comparisons can go on and on and on. And you can be deliberate about mental health issues, but you're definitely designing for other issues when it comes to the connectivity on the neighborhood scale. And it becomes, when you're designing a more sustainable urban environment, it by, as a byproduct might be contributing significantly to a better mental health. Yeah, I, uh, I like how sustainable design isn't just at the building level, but it's also at the urban and community level and how they all interact with each other to really create these sustainable communities. I, I mean, I, you know, that, that's really the goal to create sustainable built environments and not just look at one client who wants to make one sustainable building. The goal is to make communities and, you know, at the urban scale, the city scale, uh, everything to interact with each other to create the most sustainable lifestyle and um, embodied energy. And I, I think this is also a great point to talk about how important integrated design is. So uh, I guess traditional design is having a um, structural engineer, um, an architect, you know, all, all the entities of building a client hiring independent firms to design and then, you know, whatever is built is built. But I think now what we're looking at and what really the, you know, the, the, the coolest and best buildings out there, clients are hiring integrative firms such as, um, you know, I'll, I'll throw a couple names here, Arup, uh, Burl Happold. And uh, what these firms are is they, they typically have multiple building entity designers in-house that work together to create uh, the best package and best performance of a building. And I, so that's on the, just the individual building scale. But I also think it's important to extend this mindset to the urban and community scale. So moving on to maybe more of the social justice side of things, Dr. Rocca, in our building physics modern class, we are currently, you know, I guess this is the first year we're trying it out, but working um, with the Grove Parks Foundation here in Atlanta, which is essentially a group that focuses on revitalizing and stabilizing an area of Atlanta that has paid the price of redlining and disenfranchisement, creating uh, the cycle of poverty. So, uh, you know, and what we're doing right now is um, it's it just kind of um, experimenting with how we can educate the homeowners as well as the um, various entities in the foundation to um, create better uh, design and inform their design choices. But given a higher barrier to entry uh, to sustainable design, um, as far as more upfront costs, how can uh, these disenfranchised or lower income areas see a greater shift to sustainable design? So I know you mentioned in the past, you know, the incentives as far as, or I think in this case, it would be more um, applicable to the decentives as far as having the codes reflect and create necessity for, um, for this design to even be built. Are there any other uh, things you want to mention about how this can become more possible? Yes, absolutely. There are several means by which you can address uh, a disenfranchised community or underrepresented minority in general when it comes to sustainability and design. The first of which, the most simple of which, is just education. And involvement with a community where you can educate them about 
their practices that might contribute to uh, an energy burden, an energy bill burden, where there's monies that are paid just because the systems are not being used in a way that is more efficient or more cost effective becomes very important. And this applies to all scales. This is just not underrepresented minorities. Everyone can really benefit from an educational experience that lets them know when do you turn on the AC? When do you use your heater? Why is daylighting important and that drawing the shades up is going to be better for you? All of these really minor interventions from a human behavior perspective become very effective. But from a practical standpoint, when we're talking about deteriorating built environments, we can develop models that represent how these buildings might perform better. And we might make cases for policy interventions that helps these built environments and, of course, the people that are living in them. So, for example, uh, you should be aware, because in our class we discussed this, Devin, the weatherization program in uh, in the United States by the Department of Energy, which is basically an application-based approach where uh, a building owner can apply or a neighborhood can apply to receive funds from the United States government, federal funds, to uh, upgrade the built environment that they're living in. If a roof is leaky or not performing well, windows are broken, insulation is deteriorating, these are all things that you can access due to the government's vested interest in this. And it is a very interesting discussion when you see presidential and vice presidential debates that showcase the challenge of selling policy, selling meaning that it becomes accessible to people and they understand it and and buy into it, when there is resistance from a political standpoint. On one side, political uh, approach is wanting to invest in retrofitting buildings and uh, taking a stimulus package approach to how the built environment should be dealt with, and another is investing in new buildings and disregarding existing buildings. And you have to make your choice but in, in this case specifically, it's clear that there's those who want to invest in making our crumbling infrastructure, which is something that has been used since presidential debates in 2016, our crumbling infrastructure be addressed. And that's not just buildings. These are road infrastructure that are used in highways and basically not just damage automobiles or threaten people's lives, they are going to, on their own, become in their decay a threat. And so the built environment, both its infrastructure and its buildings, can benefit a lot from an opportunity to upgrade. And therefore, there's the education component and the policy slash funding incentives that governments have to play in. I can add on to that. I think we're at the precipice of um, huge investments in infrastructure uh, in this country. Uh, worldwide, it's already been going on as... as um, Countries continue to um, urbanize and populations grow. And I think choices that we make now um, must be informed so that we can continue to provide that infrastructure in addition to buildings in the most sustainable way possible. Now is is the time for action. And I was happy to hear about these government programs here um, that you described. That's really interesting. Uh, one of the, the books, Ian Bell, on the... Uh, let's talk about mental health episode recommended was uh, how to be uh, an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And uh, there's a big focus on the importance and the power of policy change has. And the, the same concept also extends to sustainable design and how uh, the change of policy um, really, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's really profound how much impact 
effective policy change can have um, on sustainable design, which we've seen um, in the past in recent years, and hopefully we'll see at a more significant scale in the future. But I emphasize hopefully. Yeah, I I think that's a missed opportunity for a lot of engineers. Uh, We need to get more engineers uh, involved in shaping and informing our policy. It's not enough engineers uh, engaged in the government, I think. That's a good point. And I actually never thought about that. How can uh, engineers engage in um, policy change? Well, I mean, they can certainly run for public office, but um, mm-hmm. there, are, there are actually fellowships out there. So, Devin, if you're interested in taking advantage of some of those, there are um, fellowships you could even apply for. So you can get trained uh, into you know, how to engage with the government beyond holding office, you know, um, becoming a lobbyist or working for uh, a governmental program. I think a, a fellowship would be a great way for you to get your foot in the door there. Oh, gotcha. Good to know. You know, we, we were talking about how lower income areas are in need of higher sustainable design. And I think on the flip side, so some background information on myself, I took a gap year after high school, um, working with Habitat for Humanity on their construction team for a year. And uh, what I noticed was that, which I learned obviously more through undergrad and grad school, is that their um, design of the homes we built were actually um, a lot more sustainable And the emphasis was on building our our buildings that we built were LEED certified and emphasized on the user experience as far as lowering lowering their energy bills. So obviously, this program was Habitat for Humanity is um, focused on, you know, giving lower income families the best homes and homeowner experience they can have. But what I see just driving around, walking around, I see these really nice homes under new construction that just do not have the um, same quality level of build versus these lower income, these homes are designed for lower income families. Is, is this also an issue of um, policy um, and codes? Or is this an issue on maybe the consumer just focusing on wanting to get a pretty home versus being educated on knowing what that pretty home, how it will perform long term? So it's both. Uh, and, and I know that this is an unfortunate answer because it just sums it all up. But in reality, it's not really one one side or the other. You have to appreciate a policy when it exists so that you know why you are inv- doing these kinds of investments or why you are involved in these kinds of practices. But at the same time, you have to be educated on, on these things. So the policy's existence is great. If it doesn't, then we need to educate policymakers or we need to become policymakers. But we also have to have an informed public that wants to be part of that because of their awareness. Rather than having a discussion on the validity of climate change, we should be having a discussion on how fast we should be reacting, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks. So I guess before we close here, my my last question, Dr. Raka, I know um, you're a licensed architect in Egypt and, and kind of witnessed the firsthand and also grew up over there. So witnessing the firsthand design experience, what can you say America is doing right and what is it doing wrong as far as um, sustainable design goes? Uh, it has nothing to do with my perspectives or, or upbringing or uh, my education because 
coming from the context of Egypt, it's a very different scale. Egypt is comparable maybe to a state, like that's basically it. And so the scale is very different. Uh, also, the environment is very different, both political and microclimatic, actually, or climatic in general. However, I can tell you my perspectives on the United States, which can be contrasted with what's happening towards the rest of the world, for example, in Europe. There is a significant emphasis on the ability to choose, which is very important in the United States from a citizenship perspective. Like you want to be a citizen of the United States because you have access to freedoms and choices, which becomes quite a, a range, basically, when you're dealing with issues of climate change. And so when you are in the context of a more stringent environment, such as being in, in Germany or France in Europe, you find that there is a more of a top-down approach to how we're going to be handling things. And that top-down approach uh, basically helps, but at the same time constrains. And so what the, the United States is doing is allowing for a lot of options and gives access to a lot of opportunities uh, that I believe is a very positive thing. Most of the programs that we w w we embrace around the world, like LEED uh, or the Well Building Standard, have been developed in the United States. And so you have the capital and the economy that basically allows for entrepreneurs to develop approaches that become adaptable and by choice people like them and want to be involved in them. But at the same time, there is not enough top-down that in, it makes stringent decisions for people. For example, carbon tax is something that has been on everyone's discussions, but never was implemented and would have a lot of challenges being implemented because it is perceived as an infringement on freedom. And so it is a challenging setup. Uh, and the best approach to this, in my opinion, would be educational. And the United States is leading in its educational institutions, but not necessarily leading in its emphasis on education. And so if we can do more of an effort in education, we would be more accepting and actually more developing of policies that would contribute to a more sustainable built environment and definitely address climate change in a faster way. That makes sense. And Dr. Raka, you just kind of answered this. Um, so Dr. Curtis, I, before we conclude here, the goal is obviously increase sustainable design. How will we reach it and, and how close are we to reaching it? I don't know that there's a finish line here, right? I think we're constantly working uh, to get more and more sustainable. Dr. Radka made an excellent point in the beginning that it's, you know, it's no longer net zero, it's um, net negative. Um, so we just keep pushing that finish line further and further out. And um, technology is our friend here, uh, along with policy uh, to get us there. Awesome. So what, what I like to do at the end of every episode is open the floor to guest speakers. You know, I really don't want um, this conversation to be limited to what I'm asking as far as my questions. So I like to create a space for uh, guest speakers to mention or talk about anything they maybe didn't have the chance to directly talk about. So I, I can I can just ask a question to Dr. Curtis because I, I, I'm fascinated. I'd like to learn, learn more. So um uh, I've learned about your research when it comes to materials and various aspects of how you approach sustainability and thinking about it. But the specifics of it, which is something that might be less interesting to a general audience, is something that I'm interested in to learn about what really 
excites you, what makes you wake up in the morning from a research perspective, and this is what you want to be doing, at least in the past few years and the next few years. So you have a specific problem in mind that you are tackling at the moment? Ah, thank you. That's a great question. So um, I think for me, the ubiquity of concrete is uh, something that really excites me, the fact that society relies on it so much. We are using um, more concrete now than ever before. When I was in grad school, like you, Devin, we used to say that um, the annual consumption worldwide of concrete is like one ton per person per year. Uh, these days, it's three tons per person per year. It, oh, we, wow. use more, we use more concrete um, than any other material other than water each year. And so even small improvements in the way that we create it to make it more sustainable has huge global impact. And so right now, I'm really excited about developing uh, more sustainable cements that could be readily deployed worldwide. Uh, so we're looking at changes in cement chemistry. We're looking at blending cements with other materials. We can use less of that energy-intensive and greenhouse gas-intensive cement inside of our concrete, but still deliver a quality product. Um, I'm really interested in engaging with organizations like the American Concrete Institute that develops our design code so that we can get these materials approved uh, for use. I partner also with industry and state DOTs and federal highway in terms of translating what we're learning, you know, through research into practice. Uh, so those are the things that really excite me. I love working in a place like Georgia Tech where they value both the material science or the science-based aspects of research, but also the application. Um, not all universities are like that. So I, I really like uh, my job and I feel very fortunate to be able to come to work and, and uh, do the research that I'm interested in and work with really bright students like Devin. Yeah. I, oh, wow. Thanks. <laughs> I personally find, so I didn't mention this in the introduction. I've been at Georgia Tech for the past couple of years only. So after my PhD, I joined Syracuse University for a while. Fantastic school of architecture focused on design. And I really wanted to be working with PhD students, which is something that I did not have access to at Syracuse. So now I'm here. And basically the applied science component, which is basically linking always to practice and how we're going to be affecting the real world, is something that I found very profound in the Georgia Tech mantra or the Georgia Tech approaches to research, which I, I really am very grateful to as well. And actually, I, I want to let you know that I have uh, some one parallel uh, area of interest. I also got funded by the Georgia Department of Transportation. I'm co-PI on a project focusing on inspecting streets for voids, basically what would create potholes or, or issues that are uh, can, can develop into cracks and street infrastructure using drones with infrared imaging. Definitely. And also my group's got a lot of interest in machine learning. You mentioned that as well. We're using a lot of data analytics these days too. I think, so the, the other thing I love about being at tech is um, just the really bright and excited colleagues. There's always something you can find to collaborate with somebody on, but yeah, we should, we should definitely get together um, for maybe a virtual coffee or something one of these days. Absolutely. And thank you, Devin, for putting us together. It's actually, it was great yeah. this research. Absolutely. Really enjoyed oh, yeah. it. No, no, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you did. What, what we've done on the past, this is unintentional, but on the past few episodes was, um, the, the speakers have uh, had a call to action and um, it was not planned, but after reviewing and kind of 
thinking about it. I think this would be also a good trend to have on each episode. So Dr. Curse and Dr. Raka, uh, not all the listeners, you know, they're not all engineers or people who can directly or at face value directly have an impact on sustainable design. So what is your call to action to the everyday person? Ah, okay. Well, I, I think there, you know, you want to expose yourself to as many different things as you can. Um, I would say, you know, when you're in college, don't um, have those blinders on, you know, take those classes that just sound interesting to you. I know um, we all get so focused on getting a job afterwards, but um, if you're really going to understand what you're passionate about, you need to to get out there and experience different perspectives, uh, different topics. So that would be my advice. Um, take advantage of opportunities that are presented to you. I know for me, when I was an undergrad, um, I ended up studying civil engineering and art history. I had interest in both of those. And uh, the skills I learned in art history um, with you know analysis and writing really helped me today as a researcher. And I also managed to go abroad my third year, and I studied in Scotland at a university that's got a tremendous history in cement and concrete research, and that's really where I caught the bug. So I would say, you know, at this point in your life, you should just really do the things that excite you and find out where your passion uh, lies and and just follow that. Nice. Well, I'm all for that. Dr. Baca? Yeah, I actually want to uh, emphasize the catching the bug part of it because I remember when I caught the bug uh, and it was much younger and it was specifically to sustainability not in design uh, and um, just to explain to the everyday user that if you're not in that profession there are so many ways that you could be involved in being someone who wants to preserve resources so the first time I did any act of sustainability which is very specific is that there was a national campaign in Egypt to save water and so the call to action was fill a bottle of water one liter and then put it in the back of your toilet in the tank so that you are um, displacing one liter of water through that bottle and so you're when you're flushing you're not flushing that much water you're actually saving one liter of water per flush which I found a fascinating solution of course I did it as a kid and my parents were like hey you can do it for a while and then it didn't continue of course but um, technology evolved so that we have dual flushing for example it becomes part of design decisions that you want to be making and so for the everyday user everyday listener just someone who is not inclined to be that environmentally aware or sustainable it starts with awareness it starts with looking at the environment and your surroundings and basically getting a basic understanding for what your influence is what your impact can be and that every individual decision you are making has some impact i've made the decision to live closer to georgia tech and now i'm um, i'm recording with you from my office because i bike to the office rather than take a car and i don't pay for parking and so that's a decision that relates to sustainability because i'm not using my car and i'm not uh, do, uh, basically paying money for fossil fuels or anything like that is it impactful it's impactful on my life for sure. It saved me some money, but it scales up. Imagine that you have a community that is all invested that way. We are definitely going to have a dent, all of us together. So it starts with your in, your individual perceptions of who you are, what your values are, and what you can change in your everyday perception of things like turning the lights off when you leave a room and making sure that you're preserving water, making sure that you're recycling. These are all tiny things that are going to have a big impact 
when we all do them together. And of course, when you get an education for how the, whatever discipline you're in can be more sustainable, which I assure you, almost all disciplines are, no matter what you think, you can be more inclined to contribute to a better environment and definitely save energy and uh, make climate change less of a threat. These have been great answers, Dr. Curtis and Dr. Raka. Uh, thanks so much for being on. Uh, so uh, how this, this initiative works, as I've explained, is that there's a shirt associated with each uh, topic. So this is a sustainable design topic. So I will be selling shirts that say, let's talk about sustainable design. And uh, $5 of each shirt sold will go to a foundation, organization, charity, whatever um, that the guest speakers choose. So uh, do you both mind talking about what that organization is? And then uh, immediately after follow up with each of your book recommendations that you uh, urge listeners to read and why you chose that book. I'll defer to Dr. Curtis for the organization. I, f I followed her lead on this. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So um, I picked the Atlanta mission, my sister's house. It's um, actually located very near to Georgia Tech. And they do really great work in providing um, shelter for uh, women and women with children uh, who are homeless and uh, especially those who are experiencing domestic violence. Uh, they provide a safe space for them to, to live. They accept all kinds of donations um, of food and, and clothing and housewares. Uh, so anything that we can give to them is, is put to good use. Sounds like a great organization. And then the, what are your both uh, book recommendations? So I can talk about mine. Mine actually um, ties in very well with um, the point that Dr. Rock had just made about personal choices and how small things um, can make a big difference. So um, the book I chose is called Diet for a Small Planet. It's written by Francis Moore Lape. And uh, this next year, 2021, will be the 50th anniversary of this book. This was really the first mainstream book to promote diet as a way to combat um, not just climate change, but also world hunger. Uh, and she makes some really strong points in there um, that actually compelled me when I was in elementary school, when I was first exposed to this book, to become a vegetarian. And so I've been a vegetarian all my life, oh, practically. Wow. And um, if you uh, if you do this if you look at the studies, you know the amount of resources that are required to produce, you know, a meal um, from uh, vegetables and, and grains versus um, one containing meat, uh, the resources are about half. So every meal where you choose not to eat meat, you're basically having the resources that you're consuming. Uh, vegan is even a little bit less, but I found that to be a little bit <laughs> too challenging to do. Um, but um, it's it you know that. Every meal you make a choice. And um, so I thought it was kind of an inspiring book. And with the 50th anniversary coming up, I just wanted to put it on your radar and your listeners' radar. Definitely. Thank you. I so will say I, um, one caveat, though, that the diet advice in there, um, she combines all these different foods together. I, I think it's a little bit dated. So take it with a grain of salt in terms of um, the diet advice. But I think the concept there is really strong. Definitely. Definitely. Good to know. Thank you. So I have. Um, I have a book recommendation that I shared with you, Devin, but I'm going to actually, I'm going to say it. I recommend a book called The PhD is Not Enough because it actually contextualizes modern day uh, PhDs in the context of academia and industry. But I was actually inspired by Dr. Curtis's choice and it reminded me of something else completely. I know it, the, the, the connection will seem odd, but this is my book recommendation in my opinion. It's a book called Invisible Women, uh, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. For me, 
I, it was eye-opening to learn that the design practices that we experience are typically biased towards an average that is not really an average. So to, to preface this, and it, it's actually the example that I can bring from my world, uh, most of office building experiences will have a bias towards men feeling more comfortable in terms of air conditioning and women feeling colder. And that's because we are designing our air conditioning systems for an average white male, which typically has a bias within them. And so in that sense, you can consider all of what we're experiencing in design. Uh, for example, when snow plowing was done in a certain city that's mentioned in the book, it favored those who are taking the main arteries of the street. And that was problematic to women who took shorter uh, distances to do what is called chain um, trip chains. So going to do errands in between one uh, source and one destination, basically. And so by design, we were designing, that city was designing snow plowing to favor men driving cars rather than women doing trips on foot or walking. And so I think this book, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men, is going to be an eye-opener for many people about how we're designing our world to uh, as a one-size-fits-all, which is completely not true. That sounds fascinating. Uh, definitely will pick that one up. Th thanks a lot for uh, recommending that, Dr. Raka. I I'm actually really glad you mentioned that because one thing that I wanted to hit on was uh, the uh, sexism behind some of the uh, metrics provided in um, building comfort, such as PMB, which we've talked about in our class. So I I'm glad you mentioned that. So finally, where can uh, people find you both? You know, typically on guest speakers, I ask what their Instagram is. I don't think that's applicable here. So where can people find you that you want them to find you? And uh, where can they learn more about what you both are uh, up to? So uh, for me, I think the best place to connect with me is, I know this is an older platform and probably revealing my age, but I keep a Facebook page for my research group and that's a great way to connect. Um, and I think you can see the community that we're building there around sustainable design of concrete. I think it really comes through um, in that webpage. So um, say, find me on Facebook. Great. Cool. So I have... I do have Facebook, I do have Instagram, I have Twitter, I have all of that, and you can find me very easily, but I recommend that you find me on LinkedIn. And the reason why I want you to find me on LinkedIn is because my lab, the High Performance Building Lab, has a page that shows me the metrics of engagement in general for posts we do about our work. And uh, Dr. Curtis, I really highly recommend this. I have never seen any engagement like this before. LinkedIn with the right hashtags and the right uh, content for, that's images, when connected to your network, basically propagates quite well. And unlike Facebook, which has algorithms that sometimes favors certain engagements, I believe LinkedIn is much more accessible to, to professionals. And so I, I would like for you to find me on LinkedIn if possible. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you both for uh, coming on. I, I think this was uh, a great discussion. And um, I, I, you know, I, I have a feeling listeners will really like this episode. And uh, I urge listeners to follow the advice of Dr. Curtis and Dr. Raka in extending their knowledge on sustainable design. You can find me and the initiative on Instagram at Let's Talk About Official. Uh, the website is www.letstalkaboutofficial.com. And then my uh, email is Let's Talk About Initiative 
at gmail.com. So feel free to reach out to me on any of those platforms with any kind of questions or comments. Uh, you know, I'm always open to hearing feedback. So uh, this is uh, Let's Talk About Initiative. Let's Talk About Sustainable Design. Uh, signing out.